So I won the lottery. And I got a prize of giving a talk in the afternoon while you're digesting your food. Sharon did a beautiful job this morning of introducing us to the meta practice and of course we're, we're, we were quite ambitious I think in thinking that we could do this in one day, the uh, meta and compassion practices together because as she, as she mentioned um, when we do a retreat we do um, we do each category of beings one day at a time. And uh, the compassion practice, is, is that better? Is that, uh, can you hear me? It's okay. Um, and so the compassion practice is also a practice in itself. But we'll soldier on and uh, see, how, see how we go. Just to know that, that uh, this introduction to the practice, hopefully you will take home and really um, incorporate it into your practice and, and watch it unfold over time and see how, it, um, see how it affects your life. So the Dalai Lama, His Holiness the Dalai Lama said, compassion and love are not mere luxuries. As the source both of inner and external peace they are fundamental to the cont continued survival of our species. So it's not, a, it's not a trivial thing when we sit in practice and um, actually send well-wishing to all of these different beings and we sit and cultivate this ground, as Sharon said so beautifully this morning. We as she mentioned, these are two of what we call the four immeasurables or the four boundless states or the four Brahma Viharas, which Brahma means best and Viharas means abode or um, home or Brahma can also mean divine. So it's any combination of those that uh, helps you to understand how boundless these uh, states are is, um, is fine. You can think of them as boundless states or your best home or divine abodes, ways of uh, opening the heart and the mind to um, ways of being in the world with all of the different uh, conditions that come and go. They are sublime expressions of love and are the essential nature and radiance of the awakened heart. And as you know, the practice that we do the, uh, the, the, the purpose of the practice that we do is to awaken the heart to, um, to find that place of freedom and radiance within the heart. But of course, it doesn't mean that we go from a place of uh, um, being ordinary human beings to some transcendent state. It's actually going through our lives in a way that shifted that we shift our relationship to the way our lives are presenting, the way we are experiencing it. 
So we're not working uh, with metta or with compassion or the other two Brahma Viharas, mudita and, uh, and equanimity, to change our lives so much, although our lives will surely be changed as we shift our relationship to the experiences that come. The, those experiences will be as they are. It's part of uh, what it means to be alive. Martin Luther King uh, wrote that due to my involvement in the struggle for the freedom of my people, I have known very few quiet days in the last few years. I have been imprisoned in Alabama and Georgia jails 12 times. My home has been bombed twice. A day seldom passes that my family and I are not the recipients of threats of death. I have been battered by the storms of persecution. I must admit that at times I have felt that I could no longer bear such a heavy burden and have been tempted to retreat to a more quiet and serene life. But every time such a temptation appeared, something came to strengthen and sustain my determination. As my sufferings mounted, I soon realized that there were two ways in which I could respond to my situation. Either to react with bitterness or seek to transform the suffering into a creative force. I decided to follow the latter course. Recognizing the necessity for suffering, I have tried to make of it a virtue. If only to save myself from bitterness, I have attempted to see my personal ordeals as an opportunity to transfigure myself and heal the people involved in the tragic situation which now obtains. I have lived these last few years with the conviction that suffering is redemptive. Now that's a pretty strong and fierce um, statement about suffering. And we can't talk about compassion without talking about suffering. Because compassion is essentially what is uh, said in the text, the quivering heart, the, the quivering of the heart in response uh, to suffering. That as when the heart of metta, the heart of loving kindness, sees suffering or sees pain, that it responds essentially uh, with compassion. As Sharon talked about this morning, when we do metta, we're planting powerful seeds, seeds of intention, of wholesome forces in the mind that bear fruit, she said. And it's simply our job to plant the seeds and to not worry about when they will sprout, when they bear fruit, or when they establish themselves. But it is our job to keep tending this garden of love, of kindness, and of care. Although we may teach, we may have taught metta this morning and we're teaching compassion this afternoon, that's just a pedagogical necessity. It's not that these um, states of mind, these sublime states, these boundless states, are separate from each other, uh, really. They are, the methods may be different, but they have exactly the same focus. And that focus is 
a basis of awareness as the foundation of kindness and kindness as the expression of awareness. So when we meet, uh, so we use this capacity uh, to be present and to support uh, the meta practice. And then the meta practice becomes an emanation or an expression of the awareness that we manifest. So with our practice of metta, uh, the basic nature of the heart shows itself. The heart of kindness, the heart of love, which is not a quality that we go out and get or that we turn into or we become something other than we are. But again, as Sharon said this morning, we begin to um, uh, move the obstacles that have been in the way of showing this natural basic nature of the heart. So when the heart of metta encounters suffering, as I said, whether it's our own suffering or that of the world, then its natural response is compassion and care or concern. And this quality of the heart arises when we turn our kind attention to pain and to difficulty. We all want to be happy. Uh, I think I can safely say that. And yet we carry pain and grief and loss, disappointment, despair. And all of these are natural to the process of life. We sometimes tend to think that when these things arise in our experience or when they arrive in our lives, that there's something that we may have done wrong, that something has gone horribly wrong because now I'm not feeling so good or now I'm feeling pain or rage or anger or just plain suffering. But the Taoists call it the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows of life. No one is outside the natural pain of life. No one, even the Buddha in his later years in the suttas that describes how he had back pain or bellyache and he would ask one of his disciples to take the evening talk because he, he could not get up because of the pain. So this is the first noble truth of the Buddha, that there is suffering in life. So the practice of compassion is learning how to turn, to turn our uh, lens of kindness, the heart of metta that we've been cultivating all day, and see how we can bring gentle, receptive attention to the experiences that we meet. And if you've been doing this practice at all, you know that, that in each moment that we are able to bring this kind of gentle attention, this kind of gentle heart to, uh, to our suffering or to our sorrows, you know that it can bring profound transformation. It's a beautiful poem from a poet called Rashani. He said, there is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken, a shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable. There is a sorrow beyond all grief which leads to joy and a fragility out of whose depths emerge strength. There is a hollow space too vast for words through which we pass with each loss out of whose darkness we are sanctioned into being. 
there is a cry deeper than all sound whose serrated edges cut the heart as we break open to the place inside which is unbreakable and whole while learning to sing. So this tender, gentle practice of metta and compassion enables our capacity to touch the difficult. It is our, en it is our entry into this, the boundless qualities of the heart to which we've been referring. The human heart has a great capacity to transform the sorrows of life into a great stream of compassion. It arises when we are, allow our hearts to be touched by the pain and need of ourselves and of another. So the root meaning of compassion is calm with, passion, feeling, to feel with. It's that quality of the heart that feels with the suffering of ourselves or another. It is a sense of connection, not a sense of disconnection, in which the suffering of others is not separate from our own. It's the spontaneous response of the open heart. And as our own heart opens and is healed, it naturally seeks the healing of all, of it, all that it touches. So compassion for ourselves allows us to extend warmth and sensitivity and openness to the sorrows around us in, a, in an incredibly truthful and genuine way. It arises from our concern for others and it manifests as selfless acts. We, with compassion, we have insight into uh, the root of human suffering, into the causes of suffering. And it, through that insight, again, Sharon talked about this in connection with Metta this morning, having insight into the causes of suffering, we are able to learn to, to serve in a wise way, in a loving way, in calm and skillful ways, without being overwhelmed by feelings of pity, of grief, or of sadness. Because compassion opens the heart and dissolves cruelty, selfishness, and narrow-mindedness. It's the sincere wish that all beings be free from suffering. And it extends further than simply to the beings that we feel close to or that are in our immediate family or our immediate community or simply the friends and relatives that we have that we, that we know. It extends eventually, just like the metta practice, goes from uh, loving kindness for ourselves through other beings to um, all beings in the same way compassion eventually um, accumulates into the wish for the end of suffering uh, for all beings. So the basic level of, of compassion is empathy. Seeing sadness or pain, the heart is moved. And the movement is toward, not away from the pain. When it sees suffering, it's moved to care 
and it's moved to concern. And the care and concern is not pity. There is, in the classical text, they, the teachings teach about uh, what they call the near enemy and the far enemy. So for instance, the near enemy of metta, which is loving kindness, would be attached love, conditional love, as Sharon talked about this morning. And the, the far enemy would be hatred or anger. The near enemy of compassion is pity. Uh, pity for the, for the object of our, uh, the, the person that we see who's suffering. And the far enemy is cruelty. So what we, what we know from that is that compassion is not so much a disconnect in which we see someone suffering and we think, oh, you poor person down there, I don't know what your suffering is like. I don't know what suffering is like because I'm not suffering myself, but I do have a lot of pity for you. It's not that at all. What, in a way, it's a moving towards that person in a way that is incredibly connected. And as Sharon talked about this morning, about interconnectedness, that we understand the interconnectedness of all the causes and conditions that have brought us here. But part of that interconnectedness is also the connection that there is between, among all of us as human beings. We sit here in this room, we breathe the same air, and we know what it means to be human. We know how it is to have sorrow in our life. We know how it is to have disappointment and rejection in our life. This, it's, not a, it's not a foreign uh, experience. It's not something that other people have. And th so through that compassion, through compassion, we join with, we suffer with. Now it's not the suffering with that means that in order for us to have compassion, that we have to get down into the pity, to self-pity or to the suffering with the other if, it, if it's compassion for another's suffering. But that it's a, it stems from a deep understanding or the insight into connect, interconnectedness that it, un, it understands deeply that we are all uh, irretrievably and irrevocably connected, that we are, uh, as Martin Luther King says, uh, in an inescapable network of mutuality where unless you are happy, I cannot be completely happy, and unless I am happy, you cannot be completely happy either. So compassion is where we are joined together in, uh, in the understanding of what it means to be human and to have human suffering, to be subject to that first noble truth that there is suffering. Our wisdom deeply knows suffering as a universal experience. And that, so this, the understanding in this way awakens compassion. We want to relieve it. We can feel the suffering of others as our own because we are part of the same web. Shantideva, who is an uh, eighth century monk in India, said that life is like a single body organism. When the foot is hurting, the hand goes out immediately to alleviate the pain. Not because the pain is felt at the, in the hand, but because there is a shared sense of suffering in the one body. As our own heart opens and is healed, it naturally seeks the healing of all it touches. 
So it's the truth that there is suffering. So when the Tibetans say, turn your sufferings into the path, it means that we can actually use them for understanding. What is this human life about? What, what does it mean to be human? So when we see what it means to be human, that it means accepting both sides of the coin, then we don't flinch at difficulties and pain. And it means also that we can look directly at it. In the, uh, in the text where the cultivation of the Brahma Viharas is taught, one of the first instructions is to review the danger in hate and the advantage in patience. Because it says, hate has to be abandoned and patience attained. And one cannot abandon unseen dangers or attain unknown advantages. So mindfulness shows us what is happening within and we can turn to it. It's not dependent on what you understand so much as how you're willing to risk being present. So the compassionate response to suffering supports our ability to go way beyond our own fears and limitations. And this applies not only to our own suffering or to the suffering of those close to us, but to global suffering. The news, as you know, has been so full of natural disasters. We have mudslides in China and the flood in Pakistan that has apparently, I heard on the radio this morning, affected 20 million people. The earthquake in Haiti still has um, so far to go to heal that country. And so we have millions of people being rendered homeless, losing their loved ones, losing their lives. Not only that, but we have two wars going on where people are um, being hurt or, or killed. We have ecocide and extinction of species. And so we can all feel the great sadness of what it means to be alive on this earth today. And yet, and yet, there is this ability to um, find this shared experience, a spirit of kindness and care that manifests as people are subjected to uh, difficulty. I remember uh, on 9-11 how people moved towards ground zero, not away from it in New York City. Here we are in New York City. We were, those of us who were here remember what it was like for people to actually uh, know what was happening downtown and to actually rush to uh, see if they could help. That apparently they had more people in uh, wanting to enter ground zero than they could actually accommodate. And so this friend of mine wrote uh, a piece about actually going to uh, ground zero, if I can find it. Just a second. He said, as I entered ground zero, 
I experienced a feeling of awe, like entering a great cathedral or the Grand Canyon. The remaining buildings surrounding the area where the Twin Towers had stood formed an enormous amphitheater, a sacred circle and burial ground. It was infinite and intimate. I felt my heart break wide open. He said, this is who I am. This is the way the world is. This is the way of life and death. This is the nature of things. Everything that is created comes and goes, comes together and falls apart. Everything. And then he talks and he says, I had a strong impression of good intentions, love, prayers, and healing pouring into the place like water flowing over the tops of the surrounding buildings into the site. A fire chief called out, quiet everyone, and within seconds, hundreds of emergency workers stopped digging, turned off their equipment, and stood completely still, listening for the sounds of anyone trapped there in the rubble. For five minutes, I stood with hundreds of human beings, all united, resting and alert, listening for life. It was as if the five minutes of silence and stillness renewed the workers' courage and resolve. It was inspiring to experience firsthand such tireless compassion. When we left, we saw workers resting. We brought them water and asked if they needed anything. They just responded, thanks for being here, looked into our eyes and nodded. There was a feeling that we were all supporting each other by just being together. That's the power of compassion, the ability of our hearts to break wide open in the face of suffering, the ability of our hearts to come close and to touch the difficulties of ourselves or another. So an aspect of compassion is an, active, is an active quality, an active aspiration, a movement of the heart that in addition to the feeling of suffering of another or oneself wishes to relieve it, wishes that it be healed or alleviated. Sometimes it's possible, sometimes it's not. But the movement to heal is still the same. We can set that intention to relieve suffering by reflecting on what we want to happen in our own lives. What is our pole star? Is it that we want competitiveness, envy, cruelty in our lives? Or is it kindness and care that we yearn for? Because we always have that choice. And it needs a conscious intention to set the direction. Because the Buddha said that wherever we put the mind, over and over and over again, that's where it will incline. It's easy to turn away from suffering. It's easy to distract ourselves, to ignore it, to run away from it, or to push it away. But in the long run, what is it that we're ignoring? It's ourselves that we're ignoring. It's like one part of the organism is hurting, and the rest of the organism turns away. So a very important aspect of compassion is turning the heart towards suffering rather than away from it. 
because what we usually do, nobody wants to feel pain, right? So what we do usually is we turn away from it or we push it away or we run away and we have all kinds of avoidance and denial strategies. We can use television, books, study, um, uh, drugs, alcohol, uh, all kinds of ways that we can avoid and deny it. But of, and of course it makes sense that we would rather feel light and joy and uh, rather than difficulty and darkness. But the problem is that the strategy doesn't ever completely work, right? That no matter how much we try to run away or push it away, somehow it comes back because it's part of the suffer, part of the nature of being alive in this human body. And so, uh, one of my teachers, his teacher Ajahn Chah, when he welcomed him into his monastery in northern Thailand, said, I hope you're ready to suffer, right? He said, but there are two kinds of suffering. The suffering you refuse to face, and it just gets larger, or the suffering that you turn to, that eventually is the suffering that ends suffering. Because it's impossible to ever fully escape. It's wiser to turn towards it, to feel it, to face it, to understand it. And by turning a kind-hearted attention uh, that the metta practice cultivates as that touches the suffering, it naturally turn, uh, turns to responsiveness. So when we're feeling overcome with pain, with sadness, with grief, with loss, with terror, those experiences can be met with the intention and the practice of compassion or karuna, which is the Pali word for compassion. So we use the phrases, may I be free from pain and suffering, or may I hold the suffering with ease, or I care that I'm suffering, or I care about your suffering, may it end, or it can be, may I hold this suffering with tenderness and gentleness. These are all aligned responses and which help us to, to um, stay with the difficulty. And one of our usual responses in the denial and avoidance strategies is to try to fix it, right? That if a friend comes to us with a problem, you know, whether it's a problem of loss and uh, relationship or, or job or just simply uh, difficulty in life, one of our usual responses is to try to fix that problem. But you know and I know that when sometimes all that we need is to be heard and to be seen. So we know that our awareness practice teaches us how to stay present and steady in the face of difficulty. We learn how to hold the difficulty, how to be with it, so that an embracing quality of heart uh, can take it in. But sometimes it can't. Sometimes it's too much or it's too overwhelming. And so we need to take a break from it, that we don't need to, uh, the, the practice of compassion doesn't require us to sort of go in there and just stoically sit with the suffering for as long as we possibly can and see 
whether we can break it open. It's not like that. But that what it needs most, most of all is attention, is the ability to be with it in a kind and gentle way. We've, we may not all have children, but we've all been children, and so we know what it's like for a parent to be distracted. And we know what it's like for a parent to actually pay attention. That so much of the time, when we bring our issues to a friend or a parent or a sibling or someone that we think loves us, that really what we're asking for, what we're most asking for, is that kind attention, that ability of someone to simply say, oh, I hear you, and that must really hurt. Because a lot of the time when we bring our problems, people say, well, you know, oh, if you lost that job, probably a new job will come along, and it probably is a good thing eventually, but you'll know eventually that, you know, you don't need to worry about it now because something much better is going to happen. Is that what we want to hear then? Or do we simply want that loving kindness, that, that presence that um, loving kindness can bring? So the obstacles that we have to uh, loving kindness is, as I said, uh, pity the near enemy, where we hold difficulty and pain at a distance and separate ourselves from it. It's not happening to me. It's not connected to me. It's not shared by me. And it's a sort of looking down or looking across the chasm. And it has a different quality of empathy as the one is a, one of shared experience a shared knowledge of the pain. Pity is aloof and distant like condescension. Thich Nhat Hanh said, since I was a young man, I tried to understand the nature of compassion. But what little compassion I've learned has not come from intellectual investigation, but from my actual experience of suffering. The second obstacle is that of cruelty, the far enemy. We can be very cruel especially to ourselves. There's a self-critic, the inner judge, the sense of spiraling into a different emotional state like anger. And there's a way in which we can feed our anger, be attached to it, or actually begin, as Sharon was saying this morning, we not only see the anger arising and understand that it's an adventitious event that comes and goes, but actually grab that feeling of anger right in that moment and say, yes, I'm angry. That we can very much uh, identify and be attached to uh, all of these uh, states of mind come that, that create suffering. And in a way, the attachment to it is a, is a cruelty to ourselves. Or we can wish ill on another because we're angry or we're irritated or they did something to annoy us. And we can actually enjoy someone else's suffering. Can that give us pause when we find ourselves having harsh standards for others or self-judgments or meanness? The way we neglect our bodies and we don't listen to our hearts. That we actually can be cruel in that way. The way we push ourselves the schedules that most of us have, how we have absolutely no compassion for this being who needs time and space to live fully and deeply. So we 
set up all of these impossible schedules where we're running around and uh, having absolutely no time to take care of this body, to take care of this mind, to take care of this heart. It's a subtle form of cruelty, but it's cruelty nevertheless. We don't listen. We disconnect from ourselves. Or we push, right? We want things to happen now. We start a practice, and we want to be filled with light and radiating and uh, manifesting all of the transcendent powers of a meditator immediately, right? Or we start a, we start a career, and we want to uh, go up to the top right away, that there is no understanding of cultivation and setting a ground on which things unfold and um, take their own pace, but we're constantly pushing so that we're not using the softening and the gentleness and the relaxation. Or we can also avoid. We don't want to go anywhere near the pain. Fear that if we go into it, that we'll be overwhelmed. So it's best to be at arm's length, we think. Or we distract ourselves and check out. And of course, when we do that, the heart closes. We can't have an open heart. Or can it, it can be that we really are overwhelmed with the suffering, and so the heart shuts down. And so there, we need a quality of discernment to know what the capacity is to meet whatever suffering we're faced with. So that many people, we were talking at lunch, that many people sometimes can feel when they are um, practicing compassion in the face of difficulty, that they can talk about the fact that they are so overwhelmed by it, that they are laid flat by it. A lot of that is the inability to really be kind to ourselves first. And it's also a, a misconception about what compassion is, that it's not um, going into the difficulty with the other being, but actually establishing the presence that is able to hold the difficulty right there and to be discerning enough to know when it's time to back off, to know when, it's, when it is becoming so difficult that it's impossible to hold that presence. And it's not as if we can set up a boundary or a barrier in the beginning. It's that as we are learning to be present with it, as we are learning how to cultivate this heart of gentleness and kindness in the face of difficulty, we may slip. We may have moments in which we do go too far into it, but then it's the presence of mind, the wisdom, that knows, oh, it's time to back off. It's time to actually take care of, take care of ourselves. And there is no requirement that in order for us to be compassionate, that we need to trash ourselves, right? That, uh, that we are not compassionate unless we are completely ignoring ourselves. Part of it is the dance between us and other beings. If there is no difference between us, if there is no separation between us and other, other beings, then we know that the dance means that every being has to be taken care of, and that includes uh, this one. So 
what, what we're talking about is simple presence, is this boundless quality of the heart means that we bring a simple presence. Sometimes the suffering of the world can seem so immense, but we bring a presence that knows what is the appropriate response in the moment. And appropriate means appropriate. It means that whatever, is, whatever we are able to do, we are able to do. And whatever, whatever we are unable to do, we also recognize that. And so sometimes it means that we do take a very active role in trying to work with the difficulty and help it uh, to, un, to unlock. But other times it may mean that we're unable to do anything but to see the suffering and to wish for the suffering to end and to have the deepest wish that the suffering will end. The level of magnitude of suffering that we deal with doesn't mean that we have to ramp up our, um, our response so much as it means that, that we exercise the principle of turning our attention here to whatever arises in the field of our experience and that we bring whatever strength and courage and resiliency and quality necessary to learn how to open to our widest fears. The principle is the same. The quality is the same. It's just a different level of magnitude. So uh, Chogyam, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, who is a Tibetan Rinpoche in the, of the 20th century, wrote many books, talks about allowing the heart to open as a very courageous practice. He says, in the Buddhist tradition, one of the most beautiful qualities from that culture is the ideal of the Bodhisattva, who understands fully the power of compassion and what flowers in the heart of the bodhisattva is bodhicitta, which is the profound wish to relieve the suffering of all beings. The potential of the practice is to tap into that quality that is already innate in us that wishes uh, to relieve the suffering of the world. He said, when you awaken your heart, you find to your surprise that your heart is empty you find that you're looking into outer space. What are you? Who are you? Where is your heart? If you really look, you won't find anything tangible or solid. If you search for the awakened heart, if you put your hand through your ribcage and feel for it, there is nothing there but tenderness. You feel sore and soft. And if you open your eyes to the rest of the world, you feel tremendous sadness. The sadness doesn't come from being mistreated. You don't feel sad because someone has insulted you or because you feel impoverished. Rather, this experience of sadness is unconditioned. It occurs because your heart is completely open, exposed. It is the pure, raw heart. And even if a mosquito lands on it, you feel so touched. It is this tender heart of a warrior that has the power to heal the world.
So we have the ability to be bodhisattvas. We have the ability to move towards the suffering and to try to relieve it of ourselves or of others. And this compassion can arise as a result of our uh, turning to it. I'll close with the story of Michelle Bachelet, who was elected president of Chile a, couple of, a few years ago. She was the first woman in Latin America who ascended to uh, the uh, presidency of a country on her own merits. At 23, she was present for the US-backed coup of Allende. And her father, who was a friend of Allende, was killed. She and her mother were imprisoned and tortured. And she, would, she was told during this time on a daily basis that her mother would be killed. Every single day they told her that her mother would be executed, which they didn't do, but told her. And eventually they were exiled in Australia and Germany. When the government fell in the 90s, she went back to Chile and worked with the survivors of the dictatorship in the health ministry, then became the Minister of Health, and then became eventually the Minister of Defense, and now eventually elected to the presidency. And this was in her acceptance speech. She said, because I was a victim of hate, I have dedicated my life to turning hate into understanding, tolerance into and why not say it, love. I don't know if she knows about the Dharma, but I know that the Dharma knows about her. We have awake, compassionate beings on the planet and don't think it's not possible for you. You have had moments of kindness, of compassion, of forgiveness, of insight, or you wouldn't be here. You are right here where you should be, right where you deserve to be, and really right where you want to be, even if it's not in your awareness. We can hold um, a vision of how we want to see the world in its highest iteration and make our actions consistent with that vision. As Gandhi said, we must be the change we want to see in the world. And that's what we're doing by exploring deeply the practice of compassion, we transform our hearts and we transform the world. So uh, in a moment, we're going to uh, let go of all of these words and take a small uh, movement break, and then we'll come back to um, doing some compassion practice. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.